Mother Nature, meet Quinn and Quincy. Alan Ishmael stared off into the horizon, to the distant island they would be heading for with a faraway look in his eyes, like he was peering beyond the mists through a veil into another world. Alan Ishmael seemed like he was from another world. Mother Nature says you are both approved for passage to the Forbidden Island. Quinn, Quincy, prepare to meet your maker. You know, Alan, I can never quite tell if you're speaking literally or metaphorically. What's one without the other? He bounded around on the netting of his sailing ship, and it bounced like a trampoline. The Wu Dang Daoshi is a whirling dervish. She dances with the waves. That was an understatement. The bulk of the ship was taut netting, spanning her narrow berth. She was a racing sailboat. There was virtually nothing between them and the sea. The two passengers and captain sat right on top of the waves. Ellen had been a world-class sailboat racing champion in his previous life, before finding a lasting refuge from the modern world on Hawaii's forbidden island. Salty and sopping, the Wudang Daoshi delivered its three occupants across the 18-mile channel from Kauai to the Forbidden Island. Quinn and Quincy slept quite soundly in a thatched hut that night, exhausted from their long trip to the end of the world. It wouldn't be easy to return to the one they'd come from, if they could return at all. Oh, the Wudang Daoshi would take them back, but not without their souls being uprooted from the lives they had left behind back home, like waves torn from the sea. That's a little dramatic, don't you think, Quinn? <laughs> the following morning, humid air hung in rivulets over the peaks of faraway cliffs and the thatched roofs of nearby homes. There was a cacophony of roosters in the morning. A cacophony of roosters? That's so dramatic. Quincy slept right through it. She was wiped out from their journey to the Forbidden Island. Niahu, it's called Niahu. Quinn took in a deep breath at first light. Distant peaks rose into the soft serenity of mist in the distance. Mist that filled his lungs with the perfume of budding fruiting and flowering greenery. No electrical lines cluttered the tree-lined horizon. No sounds of engines infiltrated the distant ocean waves. Rather, the air was fragranced by sweet flowers and wood smoke from cook fires, not scented with exhaust from diesel engines and manufacturing. The night sky, too, had been pristine, not pigmented by artificial light. Stars had pinpricked the indigo darkness in a multitude of blues, violets, and even shades of green and yellow in the eddies and waves of the Milky Way. In the misty dawn, Quinn found Alan Ishmael sitting under a thatched roof overhang in front of his small hut with a chess set waiting to be played. Checkmate! Another game. Checkmate! Another. Ten moves. Alan Ishmael was a chess grandmaster before walking away from the world. Check! Check! Mate! 
I'm beginning to think you have a stutter, Quinn said. The first thing you have to learn is how to see the whole board, Alan said. I see the whole board. No! The whole board is not the board you can see. It's the board that will evolve over the next five or ten moves. A major dilemma in the modern world is we aren't aware of the unintended consequences of our actions. We don't see the big picture. Hold on, Alan, I'm still waking up. I usually take coffee with my philosophy this early in the morning. That can be arranged. Alan called back to the doorway in a language Quinn didn't recognize. It didn't sound like Hawaiian to his ears, but he was terrible with languages. He wondered what the mysterious philosopher's heritage was. He seemed to be a citizen of Earth, not any one country or single place. The whole board includes all the moves I could make in response to yours. You aren't seeing that. You aren't seeing the ripple effect that moving a single piece creates. A young boy came running out of the hut, miraculously not spilling any of the piping hot coffee he carried. Meet my son Daniel. The boy smiled. I'm seven. Alan Ishmael patted the kid on his blonde head that was so bright it shined like a light. That kid was born enlightened, Alan said. Daniel, can you tell our new friend Quinn what it means to be enlightened? Enlightenment means getting along with others. Alan laughed and patted his light-bulb-shaped head. That's pretty profound for a seven-year-old, Quinn said. He savored a sip of coffee and took a moment to get lost in appreciation of the natural world around him, the lost world. Less than 50 people lived here, and Quinn wondered if this lifestyle was possible for large populations or if it was only sustainable for small numbers. All right, you have your coffee, enough stalling. Back to the game. Alan made another dexterous move on the black and tan board. Look, see? See what I did there? Quinn considered the threat against White. I've just forked your queen and your rook, he explained. You can't save both, but you could have. If you saw my attack two moves ago, same same in the modern world. Does the average person think about planting in the spring to harvest in the fall to have food for the winter? No, no, no. No. There's a gluttony of food at the grocery store. The average American is probably lucky to think about what they're going to have for lunch tomorrow, and more than likely it's a spur-of-the-moment decision to get fast food. Alan's goatee danced up and down hypnotically as he philosophized. We're not taught to think dynamically. In fact, almost everything about our world discourages us from thinking that way. Our senses are numbed by overstimulation, our concentration atrophied by the constant dopamine injections from social media. You keep beating me in about ten moves, Quinn said, looking down at the board. I was a software architect. I know I'm no phenom at chess, but I should be able to think logically. But look around you. Do you see any computers anywhere? Alan asked. The contrast of digital isolation here makes an art deco bas relief of the modern world. It changes the way we think. Quinn had to think back to an art course he had in college to unravel that riddle. Art deco bas relief was a form of sculpture where the figures are raised off the background to show contrast. You can think logically, but you aren't thinking three-dimensionally, Alan said. You can't concentrate. How many times do you check your email or social media every day? Each time is like putting another hole in a slice of Swiss cheese. 
How many pages of Sophocles can you read in one sitting? How long can you listen to me? How many moves ahead can you see? Alan Ishmael communicated with a kind of quiet confidence. Quinn had to lean in to hear him, especially over the roosters sometimes. Speak the truth softly, was an adage his father used to say. Maybe that's one reason Quinn felt so connected to this mysterious philosopher. Global change is way behind the curve of climate change. Can you imagine what we could achieve if we stopped squandering our resources on immediate gratification? If we have a snowball's chance, individuals are going to have to adopt a new decision-making paradigm. Hope for the future comes from individuals making more educated, more ethical choices of, of our own volition. But too few of us see the big picture. Our internal dialogue is chaotic, chatter. We do what we're told and we think it's our choice, or we do whatever we want and don't think about the consequences. We have more self-awareness than relational awareness. We're more self-conscious than conscientious. Is that a poem? Quinn asked good-naturedly. Yes, and here's the next verse. Bigger is better because it sells. It keeps selling so we make it bigger, and it sells even better. Meanwhile, everything gets worse. Now you sound like Dr. Seuss. Thank you. We need to show that we care. Otherwise, everyone will think that no one dares. They'll keep letting their dogs defecate everywhere. Alan gave a belly roar that sent his chest heaving and his beard bobbing under his chin. So what's the solution? Quinn asked. What's the problem? Alan countered. Can you, dear fellow, identify the real deep down problem? Is it global warming or is it irresponsible behavior? Is it racial injustice or economic servitude? Is it mass hypnosis or mass hysteria? All of the above, Quinn assumed. No, I've just rattled off the symptoms. Then what's the disease? The me first mentality? Just a symptom. Why are we greedy? Why is enough never enough? Why the endless obsession with more? We're never happy with what we have. That perpetual dissatisfaction. That's the nut in the shell, the hammer on the head, the root of the problem. It's no secret. Buddha knew it 2,500 years ago. His word was dukkha, best translated as dissatisfaction. We live in an eloquent civilization. It's astonishing, amazing, beyond belief, a dream even. We live in Eden, utopia. We really do want for nothing. But instead of wonder and awe, what do we have instead? The Eden syndrome, insatiable appetites for more, 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 our appetite grows with every taste of ambrosia. The Eden syndrome? Quinn asked. Interesting. Did you come up with that? Actually, the serpent told me. Quinn gave the philosopher the hairy eyeball with his right eye wide and left eye squinting. It came to me in a dream, Alan clarified. I was walking in the garden. Yes, the garden. The serpent told me, about the original meaning of the Garden of Eden. We take, take, take anything and everything. And only later was an old man in the sky added to the myth who tried to tell us to stop. So what's the solution to the Eden syndrome? Did the serpent tell you that? Oh, yes, yes, of course. The serpent represents wisdom, not temptation. The answer is simple. It's all around us. 
I can explain if you have enough intellectual stamina left. Quinn looked into his cup of coffee. The glass is half full. Good, good. You'll always have enough with that attitude. In fact, I've already told you the solution. You just didn't have ears to hear. It's simple. It's simplicity. Living a simple life, unburdened by materialism. But, and this is important, there is a far better use of our time and wisdom than criticizing the modern world, lost as it is. And that might be the primary solution. So what's that? What do we focus on? Or are you going to make me guess? The code. The code? Quinn asked. The code. Look, chess makes a good analogy, so let's stick with it. What's the next move? What's the code? Maybe you can tell me. No cheating. How could I cheat? Quinn laughed. Is there an answer sheet? Alan was stoic for once. His goatee hung motionless. His exuberance must be regenerating, Quinn thought. Okay, well, I'd start with ethics outside religion, Quinn volunteered. Good! Starting at the very top, huh? The Dalai Lama would agree with you. Let's call that secular ethics. That's actually the umbrella for all the primary solutions. You'll find, if you really think it through, that every symptom the modern world is experiencing, from depression, anxiety, global warming, racial prejudice, all result from a lack of morals and ethics. It's a basic inability to distinguish right from wrong. It's pretty straightforward, but it contradicts our very way of life. What we call comfort is actually opulence. What we call abundance is actually excess. In order to solve the problems, we have to change our mindset, our worldview, our ideology in a way that the average person is simply unwilling to do. In fact, some people are so offended by the notion that it's our way of life, the only life they've ever known, that's the problem. I once met a woman who had a cell phone alarm ringing every 15 minutes to remind her to be present. It was the most obnoxious alarm you could imagine. And we were trying to take a hike out in the woods. More and more, modern people cling to technology with a desperate tenacity, a zealous resolve. We think technology has improved the standard of life for millions. I'm not against technology. I'm for us using it responsibly. But let's take two of the most basic technologies, just to lay it on the line. Electricity. A great technology, right? Maybe. But when we don't use it responsibly, the circadian rhythms of our body get thrown way off. We no longer sleep through the dark nights. Could electricity then be a major cause of depression and anxiety? Maybe. How about refrigeration? Gives us access to much more food being readily available, but using it maturely would mean eating healthy. In the absence of maturity, could refrigeration be a major cause of obesity? Refrigeration causing obesity? Electricity? Depression? I'm sure most people would say, wait, hold on, Alan, that's enough, Quinn said, playing the voice of modern rationality. Yes, yes, I'm sure they would, Alan Ishmael agreed. I'm using these as metaphors. I'm teaching you to play chess so you can learn to think more dynamically about things like this. 
My crucible isn't electric lights or refrigeration. It's not a hill I die on. It's digital technology that really strikes the chord. But by even implying that smartphones might be making us dumb, folks everywhere are getting so defensive, you'd think some government is trying to take away their Second Amendment rights to own smartphones. They interconnect the world like never before. But what's their effect on our mental health, our relationship skills, our ability to concentrate? Wait, you told me earlier there was a better use of our time and intelligence than criticizing the modern world. And so there is. So tell me about this code of yours. Never take more than you're willing to give back. Alan moved a piece, took Quinn's rook. Quinn moved, took Alan's rook in exchange. He noticed they were both equally low on pieces. Equality, Alan moved a pawn. Are you catching on? Quinn reciprocated and also moved a pawn. Simplicity. Alan didn't attack, although he could have. Cooperation. Quinn saw an opening for his bishop. Morality. Maturity. Alan could have won a knight, but moved around it to check Quinn's king with his queen. Peacekeeping. No winners, no losers. No takers, no leavers. Without the rich, there are no poor. Without the haves, there are no have-nots. Quinn moved his king out of check. Stalemate, Alan announced. My queen just negotiated for peace. What if the goal were stalemate instead of checkmate? Where the king can't move, but he's not in check. Or what if the goal were for both kings to reach the center of the board, to negotiate a truce? There are many possible goals in cooperative chess, all centered around win-win scenarios. We have to entirely reorient our perspective to see that's the only way to really win. Cooperation, not competition. Inequality, violence, greed, speed, all create pain for everyone and for Mother Earth. First, do no harm. Live simply. It's individuals who have to wake up and start making more mature choices. Can that be taught? That's the code of the Blue Warrior. It's time we listened to the serpent's warning about what would happen once we tasted the fruit from the tree of plenty. Why, you must be hungry, Alan said. I am actually, Quinn said, not catching the meaning of the change in his tone, just thinking about breakfast. Alan gave a raspy laugh that sent his goatee bobbing. Lucky for us there aren't any apple trees on the island. What a big appetite you have, said the serpent. All the better to feed you with. So let's have breakfast then. The game is over.